Welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. This is a bonus episode that we're providing you today. It's when I went and appeared on another podcast. I actually have admired Graham Ruddick for quite a long time. Graham used to be the deputy business editor at the Times. So when I was writing there, I would occasionally pitch him different articles. Graham would always go with the one that was a bit more different and a bit more out there. Graham actually left the Times just over a year ago to start his own media venture, which is called Off to Lunch. He writes a brilliant article three times a week looking at the different stories across the United Kingdom. And to buttress this, he has just launched a podcast as well called Business Studies, which takes a bit of a longer term view of the business stories from years gone by. He's had some fantastic guests and he's also had me appear on it. I actually appeared on it in October last year where I talked to him about how business relations operated between 10 Downing Street and the business community. And so I thought it'd be worth putting this out there on my feed so that you could have a listen to it. And maybe you might want to go and check out Graham's podcast himself, Business Studies. A lot of this conversation focuses around Tory leadership and so on. That was because we were recording during the short Liz Truss premiership and as things were about to change. But also with the CBI scandal so much in the news, I thought a lot of what I talked about with business representation in this podcast with Graham would be interesting to these listeners as well. If you want to subscribe to Graham's Substack, Off to Lunch, which I heartily recommend, we've put the link in the show notes and you can also subscribe to the Jimmy's Jobs Substack, where I write about the most interesting things in politics, technology and jobs that I've seen that week. In this episode, we are going inside Downing Street to try to understand what the new government faces. We speak to Jimmy McLaughlin, a special advisor to Theresa May on business, entrepreneurship and technology. We'll ask him what it's really like to work in 10 Downing Street and how the government approaches businesses. Question that many people asked me when I was there, how did you end up here? I mean, one of the ways it came about was that I'd been at the Institute of Directors, so had been sort of championing the case there for, for small business and entrepreneurship, running their Young Entrepreneurs Network there. So that was my sort of immediate thing that I did before number 10 and was actually going to go off and sort of pursue the entrepreneurial journey with a course at Stanford University, which I did post number 10, but Brexit happened and I basically got a phone call and they said, you know, look, would you be interested in helping out on the leadership campaign initially? And, you know, let's see where we were. And it was a very truncated leadership campaign. Um, yeah, it was a sort of fascinating kind of experience doing that and getting the role as well is quite difficult really because prime ministers have to build a team of 30 special advisors and when they've been cabinet ministers before they they tend to only have four or five appointees so there is a an element of it being like a startup scale up uh, when a new prime minister comes in because they have to find you know people that they know and trust and and have got some experience in kind of doing the doing the roles. So that was where I was kind of plucked from what I was doing at the Institute of Directors. It was obviously politically quite a dramatic time. Can you just describe sort of what it was like to actually work in Downing Street and that environment? Yeah, it, it was a dramatic time and it all happened very quickly as well. I mean, you know, it was that Monday morning that, you know, Andrew Ledson pulled out and, you know, Theresa May was 
installed on the Wednesday afternoon. I mean, it is one of the ways that British politics work is that that turnaround is incredibly quick. So it was that type of thing happens incredibly quickly and you're sort of standing behind the, the black door all of a sudden and you think, you know, gosh, this, this will be a moment to kind of tell the grandkids about welcoming the second female prime minister into Downing Street, you know, because you don't know at that point if you're going to be working there or not. It was all encompassing. I mean, it, this is the the challenge that number 10 special advisors have is that it's it's a bit like trying to drink from a fire hose. You know, you get so much information, you know, your email inbox is flooded on the announcement of your appointment from various lobbyists, media, etc. And so it is just incredibly difficult to kind of get to, you know, it does take a number of months to sort of get an understanding of the land, particularly when it's been such an unexpected kind of turnaround of events. You know, you sort of looked at mid-June and it looked like David Cameron was going to be in power for at least another three or four years. And then, you know, literally in a month, it's it's all changed. So it is rapid, these changes of power. And you're just trying to cover as much ground as possible to understand as, as much as possible. Because actually the number 10 team is quite a small team 25 to sort of 30 special advisors at the beginning but even then the whole kind of building itself is only 200 people how close do you feel to the action how how much would you see theresa may nick timothy and fiona hill on a daily basis we were lucky because well lucky or yeah we our office where we were was just a few down so we were on the ground floor and the ground floor was kind of where you wanted to be with that and a lot of it, you know, I sort of, when coming in and out of the building, I'd have to walk past the private office and so on. So you'd see Fiona Hill and Nick Timothy quite regularly there and the, and the PM as, as well. And sometimes, you know, you'd be in the 8.30 meetings and the 4 p.m. meetings that would kind of be at the, the kind of key focal points of the day. I wouldn't always be in those, depending on what, what was kind of in the agenda on any given day. You'd obviously have a core team in those yeah it would it would vary in in that sense and a lot of it was you know i mean it's a bit of a cliche about the west wing right like the west wing is entirely filmed like in scenes walking around corridors and so on but it was was a lot of information gleaned in the in corridors and i actually thought that was you know it'd be very interesting to know about people that were there in covid times because um obviously you didn't you didn't have a lot of that and what was it what was your role like could you just explain what it involved on a day-to-day basis and what the sort of short, medium and long-term ambitions were. Short term was trying to kind of act as an early warning system of things that could go wrong. And actually one of the things like would be scanning the business pages and seeing what was going. Because often actually there'd be stuff in the business pages that you'd see and think, this is going to blow up to be a bigger issue um, in the in the coming weeks and this is going to make the the front pages so there's that sort of semi-public stuff that would be there and then medium term there was quite a lot of the job that people didn't really see and understand was kind of the international investors so on and going back to my point of there not being many people in number 10 you know the prime minister would love to meet people that were thinking of investing several hundred million or, or even billions of pounds in the uk economy but wouldn't necessarily have the time to do that particularly during the kind of maelstrom that we were operating in, in in terms of what was going on with Brexit. So a big part of that was actually, you know, people asked which department did I deal with most, and obviously there was business and treasury, but DIT was a 
was a huge one, particularly at that time as well. There was a lot that we kind of reassurance that we had to give to people, particularly in the first year of Theresa May's leadership. Like there wasn't that much that could be said publicly about what we were trying to do with, with Brexit. So it was a lot of kind of assurance and kind of bringing people into the building and sort of talking about our future, you know, medium and, and long-term plans with that. And, you know, the, the long-term stuff that I was focused on was kind of working with entrepreneurs about, you know, how we could make the ingredients as strong as possible for it. You know, David Cameron and George Osborne had really kick-started a kind of startup revolution in 2010 with Startup Britain campaign. And so by the time that yeah, we were there in 2016, you know, lots of that was there, but it was like, how do you take it to the next level? How do you do more with scale-ups? Did business leaders want to see the prime minister? How much did the prime minister want to see business leaders? That a uh, good, uh, good, good double question. Um, so business leaders were quite keen to sort of see the prime minister. There's no doubt about that. And, you know, she always had a kind of appreciation for these are the people that you know, create the jobs, pay the taxes and so on. So it was, there was always keenness to try and do it. It's just one of these things that is perhaps underappreciated, I think, about kind of a prime minister's week is just the amount of hours that are taken up already before you start with things. You know, because you've got things like PMQs and you've got the prep for PMQs, you've got the audience with the Queen, uh, you've got the cabinet meeting. So it was like one of these things that we would try and sort of Remember, we were looking at one point of like, yeah, and, and how do you make these experiences like as, as good as possible? Like one of the things that we were looking at was breakfast meetings, but actually it's quite difficult to do stuff on a Monday morning when it comes to breakfast meetings and so on. Tuesday morning, you've got cabinet, so you can't do it then. Wednesday morning, you've got PMQs, so it's not really ideal because the prime minister is quite focused on that. So that sort of only you know, gives you a Thursday. And actually there was often quite big sort of trips away and so on in terms of Thursdays and Fridays. There's quite a challenge actually. You think, oh, I'll tell you what, we'll put on this sort of series of breakfasts. Don't need to be long, but they can be quite sort of informative and so on. So it was a, it was a challenge for how you did that in terms of just where do you find the time for these things? You spoke about being an early warning system. Have you got examples of, of where that proved to be the case or where business leaders started a discussion or brought up issues where things started happening quite quickly after that? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the classic ones would probably be Carillion, where it was sort of, you know, being talked about in the business press. And you just thought, this is so many jobs. This is going to cause such a big problem. We, we, yeah, we need to get a kind of plan in place for this. And the civil service were pretty good at that kind of thing, actually, in terms of like directing them. But it was just sort of, I guess, being that political early warning system of like, this is going to be a problem. I remember at the start of this year, actually, sort of tweeting that, you know, Richard Fletcher at the time just talking about the kind of levels of profit that the oil companies have been making and so on. And I was just like, again, my sort of like, yeah, it, it doesn't leave you. I was just like, that is going to become a big political problem later this year. That's the sort of semi-public stuff that's already out there. And then it was... The other side of things that was quite important with Brexit and so on was speaking to the, the supermarket retailers were a classic one of, you know, trying to find out what was happening with food inflation and, and what were they seeing? Because, you know, these guys have now got stuff almost in real time, like an hourly basis of these things. And that was really important to kind of try and feed that into the prime minister in terms of the information that she was receiving about what was happening. 
What's your take on what's happened since you left office? Because obviously under Boris Johnson, uh, well, Boris Johnson obviously famously said F business. And and there was very little effort, I think it's fair to say, to engage or listen with business. What was your take on that looking from afar, knowing how it had been done when you were in office? Yeah, I mean, there's a a real challenge with that in terms of, you know, you look at what gets done next because you think, you understand how people want to bring come in and bring their own stamp on things. But in the same, same way that David Cameron's lot probably looked at some of the things that we did at the outset, it was like, you know, that, that is going to be a mistake. I think actually Boris was a very sort of pro-business mayor and so on. I think that the quotes that he was sort of like, that have been attributed to him as well, there's been lots of sort of speculation about whether he was kind of referring to groups that represent business rather than business directly and so on. But I mean, it did encapsulate sort of generally what the business world kind of felt in Brexit was that it was a big sort of shift change in in the dynamics of the relationship between business and government. And I think pre-Brexit, there was sort of this, you know, it, it did feel like business and government were in the same boat. And I include this in terms of the new labor years as well, in terms of, you know, target of two and a half percent GDP growth, to use a phrase that's being banded around at the moment, the government and business were almost in lockstep to try and find the best way to get that. And there was, you know, inevitably with Brexit, you know, things did change in that sense. You know, watching what Boris's team did, I, you know, I think on the whole, it was, you know, it was pretty good. I mean, it was, it obviously ended up being, changed so much by coronavirus because such a big part of the role of number 10 is that kind of convening and spotlighting power. And, and obviously so much of that was sort of taken away by coronavirus. One of the challenges that the whole era had was that it wasn't easy to get people together in a room to share some of these ideas. Because one of the, one of the interesting things that I would like would say on the business side of things was I was often quite surprised how often the business leaders in the room didn't actually know each other. You sort of would assume that they they would and they would have met at things, but actually there was there was quite a lot. Uh, yeah, even when you were sort of pulling big FTSE representatives together, where they wouldn't have actually met in that kind of setting and so on, and that that was always something that that slightly struck me. I guess you know in politics, people sort of grow up through the ranks together so what, much more. What were you, what was the international experience you got? Because I know you, I know you went on trips abroad. You were promoting the UK abroad. What, what sort of situations did that put you in? And how much did you get a sense abroad of a desire to invest in UK PLC? And how much did you have to really promote that and, and sell it to, to international investors? Yeah, it was a big part of it, of, of the role. There was definitely quite a lot of sort of curiosity about Brexit and why, you know, we, we'd done it. And they people were surprised by it. Um, there's no doubt about that. But one of the things that I really was struck going around the world was just how many deep ties that we do have with the rest of the world and that, you know, the, the, the kind of cultures are, f- are far more embedded than you kind of realise. Really, with the only exception being South America, where we just, you know, didn't really have any sort of long-lasting links, but pretty much everywhere else we did. And, yeah, that did mean that, you know, we were always kind of welcomed and, and so on. And actually, there was a lot about places that hadn't appreciated maybe how close we were. Japan was an interesting one, island economy and similar sort of profile of economy as well that hadn't quite appreciated before that. 
Um, so there was often like sort of quiet willingness on people, but people were quite keen to kind of understand more about Brexit. I think that was yeah one of the one of the key things, particularly when the Trump stuff had happened, because they kind of got lumped in with the same thing. And there was you know I, I think they they were different, but there were definitely some common causes in kind of what was happening there. Well, what about the lobby groups? Because we we often talk about the CBI, British Chambers of Commerce, Institute of Directors as being absolutely central to the relationship between government and business and that they're very important organizations because they're the ones that are the link and they're the ones that will pass on the message to the government about where and how people are struggling. Is that the case? Do the, these organizations have influence or has it waned? Um, I mean, they do have influence. I think it's so porous now in terms of the amount of communications that is possible right we like even with the invention of email and so on it's so much easier to talk to so many people i mean i often think about this typically in sort of journalistic ways that yeah a journalist would only sort of previously have 15 or 20 sources i mean you know you watch the news at 10 and sort of the political editor reads all these quotes out he's got from different mps at the moment right so i think there's something there about like how the communication has become just so much more plural means that they, they aren't kind of like the central bodies of, of what they were in terms of, you know, being the voice. They are definitely a voice, but I'm not sure they're the voice of, of business anymore. I think it's, it's important for them to have people that have run businesses as part of them, because I think a, a lot of these lobby groups can sometimes be full of government former government people, former communications people, and not so much people that have actually run businesses. And I think that is a bit of a, a challenge for them. But I do think that there's a case of, you know, these groups, they're partly there to make the case to government for business, but they're also there to make the case to the rest of the country. And I think that is something that isn't perhaps done as much, you know, they, they have become very focused on their relations with government and on lobbying efforts. But actually, there's a broader case to be made for the positivity of business, particularly when I was there, given that Jeremy Corbyn was in opposition. You know, it was, we, we do need to remind people about the benefits of capitalism and private enterprise in all of this, because the Labour Party, that Labour Party, certainly weren't going to do it. 